Welcome to Voices, the EISA podcast, the space for cutting-edge research in the discipline of international relations and the audible companion to EISA, the European International Studies Association. This podcast sets the stage for deeper insights into award-winning papers, books and theses, as much as it provides a room for the critical engagement with key concepts in political and sociological thought. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. My name is Judith Koch. I'm a PhD student and the production manager of this podcast. Please welcome today's host, Vinet Thakur, lecturer in international relations at the Institute of History at Leiden University and board member of the EISA. Our last podcast on what is realism ended with Professor Stefano Guzzini, who is Professor of International Relations at Uppsala University and Book Rio de Janeiro, and Senior Researcher at the Danish Institute for International Studies, laying out for us the core features of realism. Towards the end of that podcast, he argued that while all power is about politics, all politics is not about power. However, this conflation of all politics with power, specifically militarist power, happens all too often. But that isn't necessarily a realist claim. Instead, that is the core claim of geopolitical theory. Let's then listen in on what is geopolitical theory. So let's talk about something where, you know, all politics is about power and a particular kind of power uh, on which you work quite a lot, uh, which is geopolitical theory. Uh, do you think it would be correct to say, you know, for a lot of people, what realism is, um, is actually what you would call geopolitical theory, uh, one that reduces all politics to not just power, but militarist power, military strength. Uh, and given the sort of you know, relative popularity or notoriety, whichever side you are on, of John Mearsheimer's analysis of the uh, war in Ukraine. Uh, how important do you think it is uh, to make this distinction or qualification between, you know, geopolitical theory uh, and, and realism? Yeah, I think you are right that um, although I define geopolitical theory as realism with a militarist gaze, I try uh, therefore to see geopolitics as part of the realist tradition, but not all realism as part of the geopolitical tradition. Uh, there is a diplomatic component which you had by people like Cannon, the early, the early Kissinger, um, Raymond Aron. I mean, there were a series of, of people who have been working in um, in a way which I think I will come to this, it's important to distinguish from this geopolitical tradition. Even Morgenthau insists quite heavily that uh, insisting only on the military factor is misunderstanding what international affairs is all about. After all, his book has many other components, although people usually stop reading, if they read it at all, at the very beginning. So I think it would be unfair for realism to be put into this kind of militarist uh, setup. There is a risk, however, in which um, realist thinking can slide into this militarism uh, without people noticing it too, easy, uh, too quickly. Um, that is when, when you have um, foreign policy strategies and even the rationalist actor thinking in terms of the worst case. 
So if you don't know, I mean, think about it, that for realists, the big trouble with anarchy is that it induces uncertainty. So if you don't know what the others are going to do, you will try to do your best to defend yourself. And that produces the security dilemma because everyone trying to defend themselves produces collective insecurity for everyone. Fine. For realists, there's no real way out of this uh, because, well, we are under uncertainty. But the moment you have this kind of worst case analysis and you, you, you start to think in terms of atoms, of individuals here, states who all have to self-defend them, um, then the military comes in as being the most important defense line because at the end of the day you want to defend your territory, your people, whatever you want to call it. And therefore you slide into, despite the fact that you say, of course, international politics is about many other things, but you slide into believing that the military is the most fundamental part because it's that which provides the survival in the system. And uh, therefore the maximization of power becomes um, a necessity and not a question of choice. Um, the, 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 the trouble with this is that, of course, realists are perfectly aware of the fact that this can produce self-fulfilling prophecies like the security dilemma or like arms races. And that if you take the political um, morality of realism seriously, then you need to moderate this kind of behavior. And if you need to moderate this kind of behavior, you think in terms of cooperative schemes. You no longer think in terms of just the individual. You might not believe in collective security. That's a different thing. But you might believe in arms control. Or you might think that some multilateral institutions will be stabilizing factors in international affairs, as even Mersheimer by now is happy to admit. So the idea behind this is that you have to think about uh, the international system in terms of a diplomatic system, in terms of a political order where the military plays a role, but where the end is a military, uh, is a political uh, end. Uh, you, you, you take Clausewitz very seriously. Uh, war is the prolongation of politics with other means, but politics is the end. War is just the means. It is uh, the idea that at the end of the day, you need to find the solution. And therefore, people like Kissinger will look at the Congress in Vienna. Um, people will look at, at, at con the concert system, um, also as, as Jennifer Mitzen, uh, trying to understand how we can come up with international systems which moderate um, this tendency towards conflict. And that's the other part of realism, which is not really the geopolitical branch. Um, but as I said, there's an easy move into this. And you can see that in Mersheim, <laughs> indeed. Um, so the first thing is, of course, Mersheimer makes an argument which says that the NATO, NATO enlargement has been mainly responsible for what we get. Um, there are spheres of interests. You need to respect them. If you don't and you poke the Russian bear, well, then don't be astonished that the bear will um, react. So far, so good. Um, there are many ways of dealing with this. For the first one is to say that NATO enlargement is seen as a problem not just by realists. I mean, it can be seen as a problem by peace researchers and so on, and has been actually criticized early on. And Cannon, a realist, has been against NATO enlargement exactly for this reason in the very early days. But the bizarre thing about Mersheim, I find always, is that he has to beat the liberals. The liberals must be responsible for basically everything which goes wrong. So it is not because the US has a unilateralist bend, that it had preemptive wars like in Iraq, that it um, has a tendency of not uh, looking at international um, multilateral institutions whenever they don't suit them. That is not the problem. The problem is that the liberals want to make the world look like the US. 
and therefore we'll have to bomb everyone into democracies. And of course, that makes no sense. And, and we can all agree that that makes no sense. But that is the wrong culprit. Um, the culprit is somewhere else in US foreign policy more generally. And and it is an odd thing for him to say, because after all, it, it should not be ideology which explains why the US is going where it is going, because that would be a very unrealist argument. It, it is basically just power politics. So it becomes a dilemma for him, I think, because if ideology is really important, um, then he needs to make more of a study of it. And he should rather look at US nationalism rather than liberalism for this. Uh, and if ideology is not the problem, uh, then his entire analysis is just saying that, well, if you, what, if you have NATO enlargement, then that will be potentially seen as a security threat by somebody else, which is relatively trivial. What he forgets, and which would no diplomatic realist would forget, is that at the very same time we did NATO enlargement, we cancelled all the arms control agreements that made the end of the Cold War possible. So we, the ABM treaty, um, so the anti-ballistic missile treaty, was cancelled by the Bush Jr. administration because, um, well, they wanted to defend themselves against the Iranian bomb coming in. Um, and they couldn't convince the Russians that this was a very good idea. Well, um, the um, conventional arms um, weapons treaty was also not uh, renewed. So we have basically no control over conventional forces and, uh, in Europe. And that undermines the role of the OSCE, which was the, well, the, the organization which was supposedly looking for the post-Cold War era. We have the chemical ban treaty, uh, chemical weapons ban treaty, where the new protocol was refused against by uh, by Bush Jr. And we have the INF treaty, which was uh, no not prolonged by Trump. So we have. I'm not saying that the Russians were always unhappy about this, um, but what we have is that while at the same time you have NATO enlargement, you have nothing in the kind of diplomatic multilateral sphere which would inframe. Uh, the security system and produce a political security order in Europe. And so realists would actually have to say this is a non, this is not a good uh, policy to be had, but you wouldn't hear Mersheimer saying so because he's an offensive realist and he doesn't really take that much uh, this into account. And that is unfortunate because I think um, much of the discussion that comes out of the peace research tradition in Europe as well would, would stress the point that it is not a choice between the military uh, and pacifism and so on, but how you embed the military component in a security order is a political question and that we have left out this political question. And finally, I mean, Mersheimer has been making this argument from the 90s and back to the future um, that we will return to this kind of little European uh, ethnic wars and others, much informed by the Yugoslav wars at the time. That presupposes also that there are somewhat given spheres of influence. But actually, the 90s, we didn't have spheres of influence. There was a, there was a um, how can I say, a liquid system, uh, a security system. So it is not that pre-existing spheres of influence have been poked into. It is our missing political strategy, which have reproduced the spheres of influence that we had gotten rid of at the end of the Cold War. And again, that is something that I guess some realists would make as an argument in foreign policy strategy, but you wouldn't hear in Mersheimer. And not in geopolitics more generally, actually. Yeah. Uh, I mean, speaking of geopolitics, 
more specifically as a term, it is, uh, as you say in one of your pieces, has a disreputable past, right? It's with its uh, associations with imperialism, fascism, and uh, Nazism, and so on. Uh, and, and of course, there is uh, what you call a neoclassical geopolitics, uh, a new form of geopolitics, which is slightly different. Uh, uh, could you, for us, sort of uh, lay out what are some, some of the central assumptions of uh, geopolitical theory and how much do you think that the contemporary geopolitical theory still carries the legacy of its past? All right. So I think geopolitical theory is characterized by four features, two of them being relatively uncontroversial. The first is that geopolitics stresses the interconnectedness of the world that produces a totality. Um, here, early thinkers have often resorted to the metaphor of an organism that functions as a proxy for the holism of classical geopolitics, where all in the world is connected with its parts, playing different roles and in this life cycle of expansion and decline. So totality and interconnectedness would be the first part. The second is that this world is not just interconnected, but it is finite. Um, the finiteness of the world means that you can no longer export um, conflicts. So the, you could use as a, as a classical example the the way that the Berlin Conference was um, in good imperialist times dividing up the world and the finiteness came became visible to the Europeans in the Fashoda crisis when the French and the English or the British uh, colonization of Africa came at loggerheads when they met each other. So there was no new place in which Bismarck could push people around so to make them forget that he had just unified Germany. Um, Interconnectedness and finiteness are two things which I think most of the theories in international relations would, would share. What becomes the more specific component for geopolitics is a third one, which is a form of neo-Malthusianism, which gives it this very pessimistic, determinist, and often also demographic imprint. Um, so Malthus has been concerned with the relationship between demography and food production. <laughs> And the idea for geopolitical thinkers is that there is a fin finite amount of resources. The, the, the cake isn't getting bigger, but we are getting more. And there are more and more states in there. And therefore, there will be necessarily a mismatch between these two. So Malthus doesn't necessarily mean, therefore, that what comes then afterwards, we have to go to war. But it's already somewhat put into it that this can become rel relatively conflictual. So you have then concepts like demographic pressure, uh, which is a typical geopolitical concept, or vital space, which become inspired by this. But then finally, and that's the one which has given it its very bad um, um, reputation, out of this Malthusianism, you get social Darwinism. That at the end of the day, uh, if the if the cake is not getting bigger, and if they are the resources are actually getting smaller given the demographic pressure and so on, uh, there will be necessarily a conflict. Uh, and these conflicts are distributional conflicts. They are about resources, and that makes it an incredibly determinist because at the end of the day, only conflict will happen. It cannot be otherwise, and a very materialist theory because it's all about resources in order to make a particular. Uh, country, state, civilization, whatever you call the, the initial unit, survive. 
Now, obviously, if I talk about this today, <laughs> there would be few people who would uh, openly um, endorse social Darwinism. Um, that is difficult to see. So if people say that uh, I'm unfair by criticizing uh, geopolitical theory today, by referring to this, they, they would say this is the old uh, geopolitics. But they are, people have done their job. Uh, they have moved beyond this. But I'm not so sure. <laughs> uh, in fact, I think there's a, there's a problem in this argumentation, at least for some of them. Uh, Marc Bassin, a political geographer who is now in, in Stockholm, uh, Södertörn, has called it um, neoclassical geopolitics. So how come if all what we have now is so new, we need still references to Mackinder, Ratzel, McMahon, and so on, what makes it that we make these uh, references to the good old thinkers? Why are we going back to them? Because many are. Uh, and uh, it is true that there will be the more uh, acceptable Anglo-Saxon ones and the disreputable German ones, but um, it is still there that there is a tendency to rely on their previous knowledge as a starting point for where we're getting today. And I think that produces a dilemma. Because if all what we say is that geography matters, then every theory of international relations is happy with that. It's a very trivial um, contribution. I mean, we do IR, right? So, I mean, obviously, geography matters. But if you refer to the geopolitical tradition, even if you say it's no longer determinist, you cannot read politics off the map, it is no longer environmentally determinist, as they call it, you have to give it primacy. There must be a reason why we have to refer to geopolitical thinkers. It is that the geogra geographical factors will be the primary ones, the ones that make the explanatory um, difference. Which is although exactly that what most of the people now say one shouldn't do. So it produces the dilemma that either it says something correct, but then it's trivial, or it says something which is not trivial, but turns out then not to be correct. And so when I... And I think it is important that one one should not this dilemma is in a certain sense even more important because geopolitics has a performative component it is not something which is an innocent wording it does something when we use it uh, thanks stefano i mean in your own book which i think came about a decade ago um, the return of geopolitics in europe and i can't think of a time when it is uh, sort of more important than ever um, uh, in the book, you make, um, uh, like you were making now, a constructivist argument about a realist theory. You know, um, uh, your argument that geopolitical theory found its groove in post-Cold War Europe because of a sense of ontological insecurity that was in Europe. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about that argument? All right. Well, it started very early because I, um, I was teaching at the Central European University between 94 and 2000. So here I was. The good... German tree hugger, very happy of the end of the Cold War, um, coming with all the romantic ideas about this unified Europe, um, being most happy after having taught for three years at the summer school in Krakow in Poland to be able to teach in the other part of Europe. I have not been able to see all that much. I've been once to Poland in, during the Cold War in, in 1980, um, in August, <laughs> during the strike. Um, so here I was, and I was very happy to share in and to, to learn more about the, the new Europe that was to be evolving. And the students I had in my class, to the extent they took IR and had already taken IR beforehand, they have been exposed to ideas of the early books that were translated, which included Henry Kissinger, 
Zbigniew Zizinski and Samuel P. Huntington. So I was confronted with a mindset in terms of the translations, which was a relatively realist, if not geopolitical mindset, because surely Huntington has a cultural geography in mind when he writes his Clash of Civilization. It's also very determinist in that regard, or at least it was in the article. And afterwards, the book is slightly more uh, complex. Um, and Brzezinski, the great chessboard, well, I mean, of course, I know why Poles are looking at <laughs> Brzezinski was one of them and, and so on, but it, 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 and I had a kind of, something is going wrong here. So in 1996, I started teaching already a course called The End of the Post-Cold War, um, because I saw what I afterwards called self-fulfilling geopolitics. If we start all believing in what Huntington says, well, then we make it true. It is no longer just a description of reality. It is an intervention into reality once we accept this kind of a mindset. So this is the background. And um, when I started looking at this, I was really imp impressed to see how many other countries have seen a revival of geopolitical thought. So it was not just that they imported people who were geopolitical thinkers, but there was also an original production which was very much informed by geopolitical thought. In Italy, we got new journals, the first new journals in IR, and they were journals in geopolitics. Uh, Limes, um, according to the wall that the Romans had built in the good old days. I mean, Italians have uh, historical references that uh, others would not necessarily have. So I looked at the uh, Google Ingram, and that one was really fascinating. If you look at the time, how many times the word geopolitics has been registered by Google, um, you see a peak in the during, in, during the Second World War, then it goes down, and then you see a peak again at the end of the 90s. So in this decade of peace in Europe, with the exception of the Yugoslav Wars, but in this decade of the end of the Cold War, where everyone refers us to now as this kind of slumber of uh, ideal, an idyllic kind of IR, in that very decade, we had a massive increase in geopolitics as a word used. And then we looked in this book with a couple of really excellent people, which included Alexander Astrov, Andreas Binke, Pinar Bilgin, Elisabetta Brigi, Peter Drulak, who was to become uh, um, Deputy Foreign Minister of the Czech Republic, Merje Kuz, Natalia Morozova and Fabio Petito. We looked at six countries, Germany, Italy, Estonia, Russia, um, the Czech Republic um, and Turkey. And we looked at whether there has been and how, what kind of geopolitical revival has there been. And there has been, but the usual explanations we got for it, we didn't find very convincing. Um, so Mersheimer would make the argument, it's the Yugoslav Wars, you have to understand, we return to conflict, so it's perfectly normal that we have uh, geopolitics. How a realist who has been telling me during the Cold War that the most important component of international affairs is bipolar competition can tell me that the end of bipolar competition isn't really important, but the regional war in Yugoslavia is really defining what international affairs is all about. That was not convincing. Um, the ones who we found were most convincing were political geographers, indeed critical geopolitics people. And they have been looking at the geographic imagination and what triggers geographic imaginations and therefore also the revival of geopolitical thought. And we try to find in what we then call in the book foreign policy identity crisis, that which triggers very often a return to geopolitics exactly 
Because in this identity crisis where countries are no longer sure about their role in international affairs, like Turkey was the southern NATO front, which nobody needed anymore, or Italy, which was the Mediterranean NATO component, which nobody needed anymore, or the Czech Republic, which was a new country, or the Estonians, which had a new country, or Russia, which became a new country, um, and Germany, which became a new country, all of these had to redefine their roles. And it, of course, then makes it easier to have a determinist theory, which tells you exactly where you have to look about yourself and, and so on. So geography would be an easy orientation. But it is only when you have these kind of identity crises. So the book has actually regularity, which I think is unfortunate because there are some countries which would not fit that regularity. But so it, it gives the impression that whenever there is an identity crisis, there has been a revival of geopolitical thought. And where there didn't, because in Germany and in the Czech Republic, there was no identity crisis, strangely enough. Um, there was also no um, no revival of geopolitics. The Germans had that discussion in the Historica Stride well before uh, the the end of uh, the, nine, um, the the end of the Cold War, and for both of them it was basically because the Germans writ on or were writing on the Western German um, history, and the Czech Republic, as Peter Durlach said it, well, it's like. Kundera, who said that Central Europe is the kidnapped West. Well, we got rid of the kidnapping. So what's the problem? We return to who we really are. Therefore, the whole thing was considered... Um, oh, the, the argument in the book is that there they, they has been an identity crisis which can be a trigger for this geopolitical thinking. And if geopolitical revival happens that has two negative implications for political discourse. The first is a reversal of Clausewitz, and the second is an essentialization of identities. So the reversal of Clausewitz is that if you start thinking in geopolitical terms, then war is a default position. All the rest is marketing, makeup, but you will return to war. So you reverse Clausewitz by saying that it is not War, which is the prolongation of politics with other means, but politics is the prolongation of war with other means. And that militarizes our political thinking. So even if you cut all the armies that we cut, we basically prepare ourselves for thinking about the security order only in military terms. And you can, to some extent, even think that the end of all the arms control agreements is connected to this. Now, this is a critique that Raymond Aron, a realist, made about US foreign policy during the Cold War. And it is something you can find in Pierre Asner or in um, Philip Windsor, uh, people who come out of the realist tradition as a, as a strong criticism, never to forget that we have to have political aims as the front and not military ones. But if geopolitical thinking takes its center role, then all is about the organization of war. The second is the essentialization of identities, which you could see within the, the Huntington thesis. Because Huntington, of course, would make the argument, um, yeah, there's a clash of civilization. But apparently these civilizations are happily homogeneous civilizations. There's no, there's no rift within those civilizations. And in fact, for Huntington, the biggest rift was exactly within the U.S. society, as his later writings about the Hispanics and so on clearly showed. Um, but what it does, geopolitical thinking, is, is to almost put ethnic or whatever national components on a map. So you will have Mackinder, who is in favor of the population exchange between the Greeks and the Turks after the First World War. 
but you could even say that ethnic cleansing is a version of thinking in terms of ethnic and therefore nationalist homogeneity, which is exactly what is happening once you think in terms of these geographic factors as being so predominant, because they would be determining that there will be a conflict happening, you can't do whatever, and of course there's no mixed reality there. And I think both of them both of these effects, the performative effects of geopolitical discourse, which make it not so innocent to use the word, will have been borne out in what has ha been happening in the last years uh, in Europe. So the, the book comes out already late compared to when it started in its thinking. And um, yeah, uh, too late also for getting anything changed, if anyone would have read it, uh, for the ways of how politics has evolved ever after. Amidst this whole, you know, tragic vision of politics, um, I was quite happy you managed to sneak in uh, a happy German tree hugger uh, in a discussion, <laughs> in a discussion about two theories, realism and geopolitics, which are quite, you know, representative of German pessimism, I could argue. Uh, but uh, before we let you go, Stefano, it's been such a wonderful um, sort of to chat with you. But before we let you go, could I ask you for sort of one or two book recommendations on understanding this performative aspect of uh, geopolitical thought? Well, I think the critical geopolitics people are really very good. So one, one has just to open up political geography, the journal political geography or geopolitics, or where you will find most um, updated versions of, of these particular performative effects. Also because the as, as good geographers, it is not a purely discursive type of analysis. You would have Mary Kuz, who has been writing, um, who was in this in, in our volume, but who has been writing afterwards on the expert system in the European Union, and has been writing also about in well the, the, the Bourdieu type of field analysis for understanding the kind of power relations that there are and the kind of epistemes that come out of it, or doxas that would uh, come out of it. You have the classical geopolitics people like John Agnew, um, where his first and famous book, I think it's on the third edition, I would um, recommend everyone to read uh, just as much as J.R. Dottol's uh, um, Critical Geopolitics, which though is is a book. Yeah, these are old books. That's true, but they are they are classics, which uh, I'm, I'm sure um, people would enjoy even today. Also, giving a bad kind of background of the different traditions, um, including the the French tradition, which I didn't mention. Uh, Yves Lacoste, who uh, so pithily um, called his book that geography is their to make wars. Um, so <laughs> as a critique of the geo geographic tradition, I mean, in IR and uh, Vinet, you have been uh, very much working on this. We, we have not necessarily been always that uh, good in thinking about the origins of our, of our discipline, the colonial, often racist origins. Um, ah, you find very good, uh, very good sections on geopolitics and John Hobson's Eurocentric um, um, theories of international relations. But um, the geographers have been much better in that regard. They have been thinking about their role uh, in, in, a, in a much more sustained manner. And I think, therefore, yeah, just open the journals and you will find, uh, you will find a, a, a treasure trove um, of people who are also working on this more performative component. Uh, it's been such a pleasure having you, Stefano. It's always a learning experience and all, one always turns wiser, you know, listening to you. Uh, so thank you so very much for sitting with us across the screen, of course, uh, and so very carefully and diligently actually taking us through some of the fundamentals of realism and geopolitics. Uh, thanks very much again. Oh, thanks, Vinet, and thanks for the, for the opportunity. It was a pleasure.
Thank you for listening. Please find all information on today's interview guests and host in the show notes. Voices, the EISA podcast, is available on all established podcast platforms. If you liked it, subscribe now. Voices, the EISA podcast, feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible.